Welcome to Parenting Your Sensitive Child. Parenting a highly sensitive child can feel overwhelming, and all the parenting books in the world can only get you so far if your head and your heart are out of alignment with your child's. I'm your host, Julia McGarry. Let's create a new parenting paradigm. Hey y'all. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you might have heard me talk a little bit about gifted kids and the relationship between being gifted and being highly sensitive. I like to acknowledge as I enter into any conversation about giftedness that yes, the term can be off-putting, but I stick with it because most people understand what it means and because I believe it's important to recognize giftedness as a form of neurodiversity. Despite the fact that historically many gifted programs have been filled with a mix of high-achieving and gifted kids, which are actually two different things, and despite the fact that there has been a whole lot of inequity in the identification process for gifted programs, gifted children do exist, and they have distinct characteristics and educational needs. One of the characteristics I've talked about on the podcast before is asynchronous development. Many gifted specialists now recognize the presence of asynchronous development as one of the critical markers of a gifted child, more so than IQ, okay? Interestingly, (laughs) IQ tests are not always accurate. If a child is unwilling to answer unless they know a question Unless they know for sure that their answer is correct, for instance, the score will skew lower. If the child offers an answer that is technically correct, but not the prescribed answer, the score will skew lower. Unless you have an evaluator who understands how highly gifted children operate. The example I've heard given of this is, say, the evaluator holds up one finger and asks, what is this? The correct answer is a finger. That's the ans- the only answer they're allowed to score. A highly gifted child might answer a phalange or a digit or the number one, all of which are technically correct, but they aren't the answer the evaluator is looking for, and they're not answers the evaluator can score. They're not allowed to score these incorrect answers or prompt the child to give a different answer, but they don't have to score the first answer, so a skilled evaluator will just wait. If a child is actually gifted, they will likely cycle through a variety of answers if the evaluator doesn't move on. So really, it's just a matter of waiting for them to get to the correct answer, which is a finger. So, IQ is often unreliable. Asynchronous development, on the other hand, is a much more reliable indicator of giftedness. Asynchronous development occurs when a child is advanced in one area, but behind in another. It might mean they're advanced academically, but behind their peers socially or physically. If your child can carry on deep conversations and seems wise beyond their years in many ways, but then pulls a Jekyll and Hyde meltdown over something that seems insignificant, that's a pretty good indicator of asynchronous development. And asynchronous development 
is a strong marker of giftedness. So are overexcitabilities. And that's what I actually want to talk about today. I think I've talked about these before too, but I want to take the time to dive in a little bit deeper today because understanding overexcitabilities is especially relevant to this podcast because being highly sensitive actually falls into the realm of these overexcitabilities. There's a lot of overlap. And while I believe it's possible to be highly sensitive without being gifted, there's actually a much higher rate of high sensitivity in the gifted population. And it starts to make sense when you start to see these overexcitabilities as traits of giftedness and start to understand that they're often more pronounced the more gifted a child is. Okay, so (laughs) what are these overexcitabilities anyway? They are areas of intensity that have to do with an individual's responsiveness to stimuli. And when you think about high sensitivity, one of the most basic explanations is that highly sensitive individuals are more aware of and more responsive to stimuli, both, both internal and external. So we can start to see that connection here right away. These overexcitabilities, as they're called, were identified and described by Kazmierz Dabrowski in the 1970s, and research and observation over time has shown that these intensities increase alongside giftedness. So a highly gifted child is more likely to present one or more of these overexcitabilities and make actually go unidentified as gifted or get misdiagnosed as a result. My intention here is to introduce the five overexcitabilities and give you an idea of how they might present themselves and maybe even a little bit about how you could support your child if you notice that this is something that shows up in their personality, in their temperament. Are you ready? First up, we have psychomotor overexcitability. Kids with psychomotor overexcitability are active and enthusiastic. They're always moving and very energetic. And while we often think about motor skills as physical activities, it's worth noting that this can show up in their speech too. Kids with psychomotor overexcitability may speak rapidly and enthusiastically when excited And when they get stressed, they may overtalk or act impulsively. They are physically and often verbally intense. And it can be overwhelming. Still not sure what this looks like? Here's a few examples. Think of a child who gets an idea and starts talking through an elaborate plan while pacing around the room. A child who climbs on everything when they get excited, jumps on the couch, or enthusiastically embodies every character from PJ Masks. A child who needs to get out and ride their bike after school to regulate themselves and recognizes this about themselves. A child who commits intensely to mastering a physical skill. When you think about it, it's pretty easy to see how this trait could be confused with ADHD and vice versa, right? So how do you know? How do you tell if your child has ADHD 
or if it's psychomotor overexcitability. I always recommend taking a look at the Vanderbilt assessment. You can Google it if you're trying to figure out if your child has ADHD. This is the diagnostic tool that their pediatrician would ask you to complete if you were to ask them for help. This can help you gauge what the markers are and whether your child shows them consistently enough to merit a diagnosis of ADHD. But the other thing I'd encourage you to think about is this. When do these patterns show up? Is it across the board? Is it when they're bored or not engaged with material? Or is it when they're excited or stressed? If your child gets more physically or verbally excited when they're excited about something or when they're stressed about something, it's a pretty good indicator of an overexcitability. If they're physical across the board or they start acting out when they aren't interested or engaged with something, I'd be more inclined to look into ADHD. And remember, if you have any question about it, it's worth getting an evaluation done to be sure. It's absolutely possible for a child to have ADHD and psychomotor overexcitability. So finding an evaluator, not just their pediatrician, but an evaluator who understands giftedness and twice exceptional kids is important. They can help you figure out what's actually going on so that you're not just running with hypotheticals. If you think your child may fit into this category of overexcitability, you can support them by integrating physical and verbal activities into their day. Make sure they have the opportunity to play and to talk every day throughout the day. You can also help them figure out how to help themselves. What sort of activities will meet their need for physicality within the constraints of school, for example? Think wobble cushions or exercise bands on chair legs, squeezy stress balls, that sort of thing. Something that they can do at their desk that lets them have a physical outlet without being super distracting for the rest of the class. All right, the second overexcitability we're going to look at is emotional. I often say that highly sensitive kids feel things deeply so this is probably familiar, familiar territory for a lot of you. These kids are our kids with big emotions and big empathy. Again, big emotions can be linked with ADHD and autism. So it really is important, and I'm going to keep saying this over and over again, to consider all pieces of the puzzle. Kids who are emotionally overexcitable, though, tend to be very attuned to their own emotions and the emotions of others. They might cry at movies or feel embarrassed for their friends. They might know that you're feeling off before you do. Being transparent with your own emotions, holding space for their big emotions and ensuring that they feel safe, being transparent with their experiences, is really important here. If they feel ostracized for their emotions, they are likely to learn to contain them or disconnect from them. And if they feel like you're hiding your truth from them, it's going to erode the trust they feel in your relationship. Overexcitability number three is sensual overexcitability. 
And as funny as the name is, I actually like to connect this one to sensory sensitivity, which is another distinguishing trait of highly sensitive people. People who fall into this category of sensual overexcitability experience sensory input more intensely. The pleasurable experiences are more pleasurable. The unpleasant ones are more unpleasant. They're likely to be more appreciative of the arts, for example, but they're also more likely to notice seams and tags in their clothing and get overstimulated by excessive sensory input. Sounds a lot like sensory sensitivity, right? For these kids, it's helpful to create a space they can retreat to to distance themselves from sensory input as needed. That might mean carrying noise-canceling headphones with you when you go out. It might mean letting them ride in a high-walled stroller or bike trailer longer than you think is necessary or maybe even age-appropriate, right? They need a space to retreat to, and that gives them a nice little contained area when you're out in public that's just theirs. It might also mean using a toddler carrier in crowded spaces for longer than you expected you'd need to. Same thing, it gives them a little bit of distance between all that extra input. They feel a little bit more protected. All right, so we've covered psychomotor overexcitability, sensual overexcitability, emotional overexcitability. That brings me to the last two intellectual and imaginational. These two are fun, and I think we often see them linked with the others. I'm thinking of the child who gets really into storytelling. They're highly verbal and weave a very intricate imaginative story while running around the room or jumping on the couch. Or they decide they want to invent a machine to turn us all into bees, and they draw up an elaborate plan for the machine and want you to find someone who can build a working model of it for them right now. They're fun and intense in such a unique way. As a parent to one of these kids, I want to emphasize the likelihood that sharing these things with other parents might get you some well-meaning advice or suggestions for how to shut down their ideas. And it's well-intentioned but these kids are not easily shut down. In my experience, it's best to be clear about what you can help with. Let's get these ideas down on paper. Let's draw a picture. Let's build a model. And then let them have their emotions when you come up against dead ends versus telling them from the start that it's impossible. There really is a lot of joy in the process That said, what do these two overexcitabilities look like? Kids who are intellectually overexcitable want to know more. They want to understand. They're deep thinkers and have active brains. They are curious and motivated to do deep dives to get their answers. They are highly motivated to follow through with their ideas and solve problems that come up along the way they are much less motivated to do things they're not interested in. These are the kids that make big plans. They're also the kids that think about big picture problems like Hitler or homelessness or pandemics. 
They can get very excited about their ideas and leave others in the dust or talk over others in attempt to get their idea across. They may need support in figuring out how to get answers to their questions for themselves. They often do well with putting their plans down on paper, and the sooner you can help them develop independent research skills, the better. If they're worried about big picture problems, you might help them find ways to help. They may also need tools to help them rein in their enthusiasm and wait their turn, right? So if these are, if your child is one of these kids and they often talk over other people when they have a big idea, they need some tools to rein that in. I've taught a lot of kids the piggy bank metaphor. Basically, that you can treat your mind like a piggy bank and store your ideas in it. If you have a good idea and you want to tell someone about it, but they're busy talking, you can put it in your piggy bank. And I actually kind of have them tap their head like, okay, put that in your piggy bank. It can also be very helpful to give them some sort of sign they can use to show that they have something important to say, and then teach them what you'll do in response to show them that you're aware and you'll listen as soon as you're able to. So one example of this would be if you have your child come over to you and put their hand on your hip, on your body somewhere to show you that they have something to say, and then you, in response, put your hand on top of their hand to let them know that you're aware that they have something they want to say, and you'll give them a chance to say it, that you really do want to hear it as soon as you're done with the conversation or the, the sentence that you're in the middle of. It's something that can be very, very helpful for them. And now, finally, we come to imaginational overexcitability. These are the future writers. My daughter, for example, has been telling elaborate stories since she was quite young. When she was in preschool, she would make characters out of clay and act out her story with her little clay figures. Day after day, same characters. Then she translated those same characters into drawings and her teacher would record her words. It was really cool. Sometimes, though, these kids can mix up truth and fiction. One of my friends told me recently that her daughter's class has had a whole lot of drama about an imaginary squir squirrel. The squirrel apparently got really sick, I think, and some of the children were very distraught about this imaginary squirrel and its illness. Others were confused as to why they would be distraught since it was an imaginary squirrel. The principal actually had to come and talk to the whole class and explain the squirrel situation. These are the kids who would be distraught over the illness of an imaginary squirrel. These imaginationally excitable children. These are also kids who might get caught up in their story and lose touch with what's going on around them. They might draw or write instead of participating in class. And again, it can look an awful lot like inattentive ADHD. So if you're noticing these signs, it's important to look at the whole picture and weigh the different possibilities. If you have an imaginationally excitable child, I highly recommend helping them record their ideas until they're old enough to do it for themselves. You may even want to record them 
like with an audio recorder, and transcribe their words. For my daughter, it was really hard to keep up with her unless I recorded it and played it back. You can even teach them how to use speech-to-text software to capture their ideas. That can be super helpful. All right, I really hope that hearing a little bit more about each of these overexcitabilities is helpful, and that it helps you make sense of some of the behaviors or patterns you might be seeing in your child. I think it's worth noting that an individual can exhibit one or more of these traits, and it's even possible to have all of them. So if you have a child who's highly sensitive, but also very active and definitely not shy, they may have some physiomotor overexcitability tendencies. And it can be a little confusing to have a child who's sensitive and also very physically intense, especially if you've been looking for explanations and ADHD and autism and everything else that you find out there really doesn't quite line up with what you're seeing. I'm offering this today as another possible explanation. All right, so I hope that's helpful. I also hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will talk to you in the next episode. Do you feel like you're parenting 24-7 and you're still not sure your child is getting what they need? Are you ready to stop parenting reactively and start living in partnership with your sensitive child? Are you ready to reclaim time for yourself and time for your dreams? then you're going to want to explore coaching with me. I help my clients tune out all the noise, better understand their kids, build a parenting strategy that meets their family's specific needs, and do the mindset work necessary to implement that strategy consistently without sacrificing themselves in the process. To get started, just head over to partnerpath.com, click on coaching, and get your free consultation set up. Let's get to know each other.